you take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, I do know that it's Father's Day. Some of you who are maybe not regular attenders with us will be looking in your worship guide and you're seeing, rather than a sermon on fathers, a sermon on widows. There is a reason for that. Um, At our church, we believe that primarily we do expository preaching. So we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it. And we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy. Now this is the 26th um, sermon out of the book. We're in chapter 5. And Zach said it as well as I could a few minutes ago about our dads and praying for our dads, an incredible responsibility So I hope that today you'll take time to honor all of your fathers and uh, those who are with you, those who are perhaps not. And uh, so we uh, rejoice in that. Let me pray and then today, rather than just read this passage of Scripture before we begin, we'll take each point and we'll walk through it and we'll read the Scripture as we get to it in these different points of Scripture. But let me First, go before the Lord, asking Him to help us to receive what He has to say to us today. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is always relevant in every situation, at every time, for every person. And so, Lord, I thank You that today, in Your divine providence, we come to this passage of Scripture I pray that it would speak to our hearts. I pray that because of the impact, the importance of it for the Apostle Paul, that would would filter down to us. And I pray that you would help us now to receive exactly what we need to. I know that you can take your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to everyone in this room, young and old. And I pray that you would do that now for your glory and for our good, we pray In Jesus' name, amen. I've shared this with you before, but 1 Timothy was one of the last letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches. Now, this was written specifically to the church at Ephesus and to Timothy, the young pastor. If you'll go to the top, I want to remind you of something, the top of your outline, please. The theme that Paul has tried to get across throughout the entire sweep of this letter, he'll do the same in 2 Timothy and then also in the book of Titus. But the theme here has been, and I hope you've picked that up, sound doctrine that always issues forth into godly living. Now, I was looking at that this week and I thought, I I hope that doesn't sound too mechanical or too sterile. I hope you you really get the impact of it. Our need for sound doctrine, for the accurate teaching of the Word of God, that serves as a foundation for how we are to live daily. So let me put it in another way to you that, that maybe will ring a little bit more clearly. What we need to be doing as followers of Christ, as Christians, we need to be thinking God's thoughts. All right? Thinking God's 
thoughts. And where we're going to find those is in the Word of God, sound doctrine. Not only thinking God's thoughts, we need to be acting like Him, particularly as a church family. And I refer back to the message that I preached a couple of weeks ago um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, all, all of chapter 5 into the first part of chapter 6, these are family instructions. Earlier, Paul has said, I, I'm not going to be with you, so I'm going to give you the instructions for how you need to act and live in the church of Jesus Christ, which is the pillar and the ground of truth. So here he's doing this in this whole chapter, and he gives us some really, really practical, simple, clear things about relating to one another as family in verses 1 and 2. So if you've got your Bible open to that, uh, let me just go back and read these because it reminds us of what we're all about here at Heritage. We're a family. At least we want to be, and we're trying to become one. And so he he gives some instructions, very practical, on how to do confrontation. We spent two weeks on this and ended by actually applying it at the end of the church service for our church members. We actually exercised church discipline out of a confrontation of a situation that, uh, that has come into our church. And from time to time, these things come. They're not easy, but they're necessary to seek restoration and the purity of the church. So here's what he said. Nothing could be more practical than this. If you're going to confront, which we need to do, that's a ministry. It's not a nicety, I said, it's a necessity. So if you're going to do that, how do you do that? If you're going to do that with an older man, by the way, remember, only two classes of people, men and women, in two stages of life, Young or old, that's it. So how do, you, how do you confront an older man? Don't rebuke him. And that word, remember, it means to strike. You don't need to have a striking, a pugnacious kind of attitude, uh, uh, an in-your-face, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you. It's meant to cause pain. That's the meaning of this word. Don't do that with an older man, it says, but rather encourage Come alongside that man and encourage him as you would a what? A father. See the family relationship? Now, what about a younger man? It says, don't rebuke, but come alongside. Encourage as a brother. What about older women who need to be confronted? Treat them as mothers. And I said this a couple of weeks ago, as you should treat your mother, okay? Younger women as sisters in all purity. So that brings us up to today. And we're going, when I started studying this several weeks ago, I said, okay, Lord, I'm glad that, that, again, here we do expository preaching because I, I don't know that I would ever, if I were doing topical preaching, which I've done in the past, and it's hard You've got got to figure out what you're going to preach about next week. I've I've done that, and and this is is why it is so much not only easier in in a sense because you know exactly what's coming, but it also gets at every topic because I don't know if I were a topical preacher, and there are plenty of them out there, 
that I would structure a topical sermon on widows. In my entire ministry, I don't think I've done a standalone sermon on widows. And that's been a long time. So here I am today, because it's next in the whole scheme of things, and we're talking about something that as I began to study this, absolutely blew me away. Paul gives a lot of comment to how the church is to minister to widows and how widows are to fit in to the life of the church. There are three subjects that if you just count the verses, I know you remember that these letters were written as letters. There were no chapter and verse divisions in the originals, but they've added those. But if you just count the sheer number of verses given to the different subjects in the book of 1 Timothy, the comments on the widows garner the most number of verses on any one subject. More than the qualification, listen to this, more than the qualifications of elders and deacons. There are 14 verses in this passage talking about elders. There are 13 verses in chapter 3 that talk about the qualifications. Now, later on, we're coming back to some discipline issues and and what you're supposed to do with your, your leaders, with your elders. But I thought, you know, um, God knows more than I do. So there must be something here. If, if he inspired Paul to write all of this about widows, there is something incredibly important for us, Heritage Baptist Church, here today. It must be important to him. And so... It must be important to us. And that's as a necessity. I say that must. Remember, what are we trying to do? Sound doctrine, godly living, or put it like this. We're trying to think God's thoughts, right? And then act like God. Now, I'm going to tell you that as I walk through this, I'm going to say it right up front. This is countercultural. Paul says some things here that absolutely go against our little slice of history in our country. I'm not talking about all cultures, but in terms of the culture in which we live right now, this teaching is incredibly countercultural. I bet you never thought that would come out of a sermon on widows. But here we go. Let's begin. You see there are four parts of this that, that we're, going to, we're going to tackle. We're not going to do it just like um, a, a lot of commentators will do, MacArthur, Hendrickson, all, all the rest of those. They'll just go through chunk by chunk, verse by verse. But rather, I see this as fitting together. And Paul, as he, as he often does, he will, he will borrow something. He'll say something, and then he'll begin another thought, and then he'll come back and pick up another thought that goes with the first one. So that's why we're going to, you see the verses out there, God had a concern, has a concern, this is the first point, for the proper honoring of believing and godly widows. Every word of that is so important. 
And so in order to get that, we're going to look at chapter 5, verse 3, skip chapter, or verse 4, because that comes up in a little bit later, and we're going to go to verses 5 through 7. So let's listen to the Word of God about this. We'll talk about it, then we'll move on to the next point. Honor widows who are, depending on your translation, if you've got the King James, it says widows indeed. ESV that I'm using says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, I want you to be listening to the qualification of what a widow is here and who we are to honor. We'll get to the definitions of some of these words in a minute. She who is truly a widow, again, watch for the qualifications, left all alone, I said godly and believing at the very beginning, has set her hope on God and continues in ministries like supplications and prayers night and day. He's going to add a parenthesis that we're going to come back to. He he shows something that is a contrast, but she who is not one of those godly and believing widows, she who is self-indulgent, that's the opposite of one who is godly and believing. She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Again, there may be someone still after that introduction who's saying, why widows? When he talks so much about false teachers, which is important, and elders, qualifications, and all the rest of that, why is there so much about widows? Now, I don't have time to, to fully go back and talk about God's creation of men and women. If, if you're fairly new to us, I did that in January with three sermons out of chapter 2. And some of you remember that. We went back to Genesis, and we looked at the the, the, the whole thing of the creation of men, man and woman. And we, we talked about the incredible worth, the value of both, but the difference in the roles of men and women. So we're not going to get in depth in this sermon today. I recommend that you go back and listen to those out of the sermons in chapter 2. But Paul, listen to what he does. He just reminded us Again, that there are only two sexes, two genders, two identities, however you want to put it. And that they are to be divided into young and old. This is God's view. And let me say again, culture bows to Him. There is no higher view than God's view. And the reason God values widows is because God values women. Let me say something to you, and you may not buy into this. Have, we were talking about it this morning in our ABF, Jamal, you you mentioned this. Have the Berean spirit. Search the scriptures to see if what I say is true. But there is no religion, there is no worldly philosophy that ever has been or will be, that holds in higher esteem and regard women than true biblical Christianity does. 
And, and we, we live in a day, it's not anything new, but we live in a day where people who, oh, you're a Christian. Well, we know we, you have these, oh, you're a conservative Christian. So we know you have these antiquated, these, in other words, out-of-date views of women. You're women haters, you're misogynists, you've got this patriarchal point of view, which we do but it's a biblical patriarchal point of view. Don't, don't hear me say that with any kind of a proud pride other than this. The only reason we believe this is because we believe that the Bible teaches it. And, and again, there is no higher view than God's view. Why do we we say that we believe that God values women in general and therefore widows in particular in this passage of Scripture? The answer is simple. Women, He created you. Let me say it another way. Women, He wrote the book on you. Oh, by the way, men dads and husbands and fathers, he wrote the book on us too about what true manhood, what true masculinity is all about. But Paul speaks specifically here about widows. The basic meaning of that is a woman, listen, it's broader than just a woman whose husband has died. Obviously, it it includes that. And in this culture, A woman in that kind of a situation was often thrown into the kind of lifestyle where she had no other means of support. So it's broader than just women whose wives, uh, whose husbands have died. It's also in that culture, again, women who perhaps because they had become a Christian, And their husband was not a Christian. He had divorced them. They were left without. Here's what this word means. They were left without that which God intended for a husband to be, a leader, a provider, and a protector. They were left without that. They were in dire straits. That's what a true widow in this first section means. It could have been through death of the husband. It could have been that, that he, was, he could have been imprisoned. He might still be imprisoned for his faith. Or he, he just walked out. He abandoned her. It could be any number of things. And so God says, church, I want you to do something. Now, you, you, I need to make this very, very clear. He is writing to the church about widows who are in the church and who are followers of Christ, and it's obvious. That's what true widows mean. That's that's what widows indeed is all about. Let me just show you a couple of things why I believe this is true. It's always good to go back and study, okay, can this be supported by other passages of Scripture? Do you realize that in the Bible there are roughly, get this, 80 references to widows. Wow, must be important to God. Well, let me give you a couple of those, three to be exact, and see what God says about 
widows. Now, to this, he also adds another group. Watch, within the church. It's not that we're to be totally devoid of compassion to those outside the church, but whenever you see this, this is always speaking of people in dire straits who are part of the covenant community of God. In the Old Testament, Israel. In the New Testament, the church. So here's what the Bible says, that God will be, and and by the way, this is a great comfort on Father's Day to those who don't have dads in the home or those who had absent dads, they were in the home, but, well, you get it. And I, I think there's a special way. Some of you know my own personal testimony and I think there's a special way in which people like that need to realize that God is a father to the fatherless. And he is the protector of widows. We need to remember that. God is the protector. And okay, thinking God's thoughts, acting like God. So in the church, we need to recognize that and be like that. The Lord watches over the sojourners. Those were the people who came among the Israelites and who lived among them from non-Jewish background. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Now, it's amazing how many times widows and fatherless are mentioned in the same breath, but he upholds. Uh, That word can also mean that he is the, the, the protector. You shall not. Now, this is a straight word. And uh, I thought about this. I thought, wow, God was the original avenger. Okay? You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do, now he's speaking to Israel, mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Wow in a sense of what goes around comes around, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's how seriously God takes this issue of widows among his people. And again, we are called to think God's thoughts, and we're called to act like him. And so the overall theme that we find here of honoring, and all through the Bible, all through the Bible, I said 80 references to widows alone, but but the way that God does that and people in the church who are truly widows means not just honoring them. By the way, children, if you you think this all about widows and all the rest of that, we're going to get to things, how the family is, is involved in this. But do you remember, if you're a child, what is the most important commandment that your mom and dad can teach you? Guess what it is? Children, what is it? Is it the fifth commandment? Children, obey. Oh, come on, help me out. Your parents, in the Lord, what comes next? Honor your father and mother. And there's a promise attached to that. Now, this thing of honoring, look at what it says in verse 3, honor widows 
who are truly widows. It's much more than just showing respect, which that ought to be done. Again, we go back to to verses 1 and 2. How do we treat elderly women, even if they're in the wrong? We treat them with the honor and respect that we would a mom. But that word means more than just treat them with respect. It means to meet their needs, sometimes financially, sometimes practically. Like mowing their yard when they can't and changing the light bulb and changing the oil in their car, different things like that. It's always to come alongside those who have had their husbands, their leaders, protectors, providers, ripped away from them. And that's always right. For those, watch this, look back at it, who are godly and believing, godly believers, those who have set their hope. They've they've not set their hope on fleshly things. They've set their hope on God. They, They continually pray as a result of that. They have no other means of support. They're not self-indulgent. That's what this word means, no other means of support. And the church is to honor and respect and support those women in that kind of situation. All right? Point number two, let's move on to this. The families of widows have the primary responsibility for their care. Now, again, I'm going to chop this up because verse 4 should have been with the first one, but it goes with the second. And watch this. You're going to see a positive and a negative statement. Who has the primary responsibility for the care, the honoring, the nurture, the support of widows in the church? Verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that's the the grandchildren or the children, first learn to show godliness to their own household. And then he adds something from just the practical realization. Listen to me, young people and, 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 and adults who've got aging parents or whatever. He's saying, practically speaking, there, there's a little bit of payback. You may not realize what your, your parents have invested in you growing up. I, that's easy to forget. It really is, isn't it? Even on a day like Father's Day, it's an easy thing to forget. And when you're young, you, you, a lot of, you don't realize the sacrifice that moms and dads and, and sometimes grandparents have made for you. That's why he says, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. To honor those. The first line of responsibility goes to the families of those widows in the church then, that, that's the positive. Verse 8 is the negative statement. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It doesn't mean that he's unsaved, but Paul is just trying to make a point here. You, you don't want to be looked upon as those who are unbelievers outside of the church Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened. 
so that they may care for those who are truly widows. I don't know that I ever saw how practical, well, I'd never really studied this, so of course I wouldn't. But how practical Paul is in telling the church, here's what you need to do. You make sure the needs are met. You make sure that those who have children and grandchildren, that those are the primary supporters so that the church can be released from what many see it as today, a kind of a welfare system. But rather, the church can focus on meeting the needs of those who are truly widows, those really in that desperate need. So the church is to meet those needs, but secondarily. You know, it's interesting that most benevolent calls, we we have a vital benevolence ministry. Many of you may not know that. And we seek to help our people. Most of the calls we get are from outside the church, from people who have taken the attitude that the church is a welfare institution. And our deacons manage that, and they do a good job with that. And there are a lot of times, just so you'll know, that we do give to those outside the church. But that benevolence ministry and a a fund is set up so that we can meet the needs of those who are in our church, and particularly in light of this passage of Scripture, those who are truly widows in our church. But in order for that ministry not to be overly burdened, what does Paul say? Families take up the slack. Do you know, do you know what that, that word that it says uh, right, right there where it, uh, it says, let them first show godliness and make some return? Um, that, that whole issue, the provision in verse 8, that's what I'm looking for. If anyone does not provide, that word actually means to plan ahead. And, and it's good for maybe aging parents and children to sit down and to talk about what this might look like in the days ahead. I, I was thinking about this, and I know in our church, I was just thinking about our church. We're, we're, we're probably a lot different than the church of Ephesus in certain ways, maybe not in other ways. But a lot of the widows in our church are, are women who they don't need. They're not desperate living just from hand to mouth, literally. And yet that does happen, not only in churches and people around us, but also around the world. And that's why if they've got a family, let that family be the first ones to step in. I I was struck by this illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, think like God and act like God. And, And I was struck that Jesus exemplified this. You wouldn't be surprised, but he did. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, getting ready to die for the sins of mankind, specifically for the sins of his people. And what does he do? He stops. I have no idea what all was going on in his mind when the sins of the world were being laid upon him. But he had the presence of mind because he knew that his mom who was a widow, would be destitute if he didn't do something. And from 
the cross, Jesus looked at his mom and looked at John. It's interesting. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That was always John. He never identified himself by name in his, in his letter. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Look, I'm meeting a need here. I'm giving you a family that will be able to support you. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, and look at the response of John. Marry your family. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Wow. So what does this say about us, church? Godly families are at the heart of a godly and healthy church. Charity begins at home. And the extremely practical nature of what Paul is sharing, it says this, it pleases God. For the families to say, I'm going to do that. Now, by the way, let me just stop here and say, I know that to, to an incredible degree that you are doing this. And so I applaud you. I know of situations. And another thing that I want to say, this word provide to plan beforehand, I am not, listen to me, I am not laying out what that looks like or might look like. as you care for your aging parents. I'm not telling you what that's going to look like in the days ahead. You will have to sit down and prayerfully work through that, and it's going to look different for every family, I believe. Third point. Now, here we, we, we go into an entirely different subject. These are widows, but this is obviously a different group of widows. We'll we'll show you what we mean as we walk through this. The qualifications for inclusion into the widow ministry list. And the early church shows that there are several examples in the early church post-apostolic in the first couple of centuries where there was, they followed this, and there was a literal list of women who were set apart to do ministry in the church, and their ministry was incredible. So let's look at it. What does it say there? Verses 9 and 10, qualifications for inclusion on the widow ministry list. Here it is. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. This does not go with the first group who are distressed. That can be any age of widows as long as they meet the godly qualifications and they're not falling into this life of self-indulgence, okay? So this is obviously different. They're being put on a list if they're 60 years of age plus. Having been, now let me interpret this for you because I want you to, I'm going to just put this up on the screen and I want you to look. These are the qualifications of male leaders, elders, overseers, Uh, and pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
And so you see it, the husband of one wife. What does that literally mean? Come on. A one-woman kind of man. We've talked about that. Above reproach, respectable, manage his own household well, all dignity, keeping his children submissive, hospitable, well thought of by outsiders. Now watch this as you listen to Paul's list of qualifications. Well, it starts out with an age restriction. I guess this could be like not a new convert. But the age restriction is 60 plus. And so, and, and here are the other qualifications. Having been a one-man kind of woman. Same language, just reversed. The wife of one husband. Same as the husband of one wife. So not only should leaders be men, leaders should be one-women kind of men. Attitude, action, all that. Women who serve in the ministry in the church should be one-man kind of women. And mature enough so that you can see that in her life. Verse 10, having a reputation of good works. Look at how this parallels. If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints. Now, this would be literal, but it's also a a huge, big kind of a ministry that far exceeds just taking a bowl of water and a towel. She has refreshed the saints. She's cared for the afflicted. She has devoted herself to every good work. I thank God. Listen to me, folks. I, every year I serve at Heritage, I become more appreciative of who you are. We're not a perfect church. We don't pretend to be. But I see this kind of thing happening. We don't have a list, formally. But if it weren't for the kind of women who have stepped up, who are widows, who meet these qualifications, who are doing a variety of different ministries in our church, we would not be the church that God wants us to be. And I am so grateful for you who meet those qualifications and who step up not only to meet the needs of the, fir- uh, of the church, but this thing is also born out of practical implications. Godly, elderly, I'm going to expand it beyond widows, okay? Would you allow me to do that? I'm going to say godly, elderly, Men and women are one of the greatest gifts to the church that we have. And I know that there is a, a whole movement afoot. I, I, I think, I, you know, I really think that a lot of this is well-intentioned, but they, they just don't see certain things that there, there are moves afoot that want to attract only younger people. And I think to myself, why, why would you want a church of only 20-somethings? As wonderful as you are, 20-somethings, please hear me on that. But wouldn't you want that balanced with a few gray hairs? Those who are not only mature, having the experience, but they're willing to inject their life and their experience into 
your life and the life of the church. And you want to see something that is countercultural. What Paul is talking about here is that's radical. So I am grateful for that significant contributions. I put a little quote in there from a commentator that I, I've really grown to appreciate, Gregory Brown. He, uh, he nails it a lot of times. He nailed it with his commentary on this because he expanded it. He was talking about widows. So widows, this, this is for you, but it's also for me because I'm, uh, I'm over 60. Okay, some of you are too. And, and, and boy, the Lord has been doing such a work through the years on my mindset with this, on the whole concept of retirement. Mm-hmm. Let me just read it to you. Well, I'll ask you to read along because I think it's that important what Gregory Brown says. This list, Qualifications for Widows in Ministry, speaks to us a lot about retirement. Scripture doesn't teach the kind of retirement that the world aspires to at least in our culture. That's why I said this is countercultural. People work hard so they can travel the world and go fishing and hunting whenever they want. Is it wrong to travel the world or go fishing or hunting as you have opportunity? No, but if you make that your life's goal for retirement, then just check with Scripture. However, these instructions about the official list of serving widows teach us something radically different about retirement. Retirement doesn't necessarily mean more leisure and entertainment. It should mean time to focus on serving God, the church, the needy. God allows us to store up, oh, I'm so grateful for this, wisdom and experiences so that we can pass them down to future generations. Stop there. If churches got this, there would never, ever be recruiting problems in the children's ministries. And I'm not trying to guilt anybody here who is 60 plus who's not involved in children's ministry. I just see it as when you get a certain age, if you've been walking with the Lord and reading with the Word and seeking to be filled with the Spirit as imperfectly as you may be trying to do that, you do really have a wealth of experience and wisdom to at least pass on to the next generation, whatever that looks like. And I think retirement affords people the opportunity to do that. If He allows us to rest from work in retirement, He allows it so we can focus on praying, sharing God's Word, discipling and helping others in need so that you can not only be a blessing but I'll tell you what if you get involved in this you're going to be the one who's the beneficiary you'll get the biggest blessing now there's a final word that Paul says in this whole thing about widows and we've already gone through the widow indeed the true widow Families doing the primary support to free up the church, to, to step in and bolster, meet the, the needs of, of women who are widows who cannot do that. And here is probably the most countercultural of all that Paul says. And he's saying it to the younger widows. Now remember, we're to help the younger widows 
but he has some very practical exhortation for them beginning in verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows. Now, follow me. Because this can't, even though people that, that I've read say that this could be one, I can't see that it is. I'll tell you what I believe that he's saying. But refuse to enroll younger widows. Why? For when their passions, this doesn't have to be an unholy passion. When their desires as younger women, but here's the problem. There's a, listen to me, for all young people and old, older too, there is a right way to fulfill God's given desires. And there is a wrong way. Did, you, did I make that clear? There is a right way to fulfill the desires that God has put into your heart. And there is a wrong way. The right way is to follow God, to do the things, to keep yourself pure. The wrong way is exactly what some of these widows were doing. And this is why you don't put them on the, the list until they're older and be tested. But because when they're their, their strongly held passions, desires, draw them away from Christ. They desire to marry. It can't be the desire to marry. That's what some people have said, almost making it a thing like you become none, a nun, and you've taken a vow, and you go back on the vow. And I thought, that doesn't ring true. I don't think. So follow it. Just follow the, the, the line of reasoning. They desire to marry. Is that a wrong desire? Not according to verse 14. Because he says, this is exactly what I'm telling the young women to do, the young widows, get married. Boy, that's revolutionary. So it can't be a wrong desire to want to get remarried. The wrong, here's the wrong thing is when you don't follow the Lord's pattern in getting married because there are those who are young widows who so desire to be married that they're willing to put aside following the Lord and marry someone who's not in the Lord and become unequally yoked. And that's what Paul is militating against. That's why he says right here, they, their passions are drawn away. They draw them away from Christ. They desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned, not for getting married, but for having abandoned their former faith. And there's a pile, there's a world of problems in that natural, that God-given desire to be married when we go outside his pattern of being unequally yoked. That's what he's talking about here. Besides that, here's what happens. They learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. That's a problem in the church sometimes. So I would have it. Here's what Paul's Here's what he says, older women, I want you to teach younger women to do something. Here's a parallel passage in Titus chapter 2. Older women, likewise, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so what? Train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. 
countercultural. So here's what Paul says. I would have younger widows marry, number one. Two, bear children if possible, number two. Manage their households, number three. And out of that, you will give no foothold, no opportunity for the devil, the slanderer, to slander. Because some already have gone after Satan and they've given the opportunity to do it. Is this countercultural? In a day where it is almost, and this goes back even further, but in a day where young women, where, where our teenage women, young women, are being told that, quote, just being a housewife is not enough. Paul says, um, God created all of this, and he created women to have a special place in his economy, that, that barring something that he's making an exception for, the desire to get married, the desire to have children and raise those children in a godly environment, and to manage their own households. Don't you hear me saying that working outside the home is a sin for women? But working outside the home should never, in God's economy, be the priority. It should always be the management of their own household. That's where she should be primarily invested. Do you see why I said at the very beginning, this message, and I, I, Berean spirit, please test this, but I believe that this message could be one of the most counter-cultural messages for our culture today in a day that wants to erase women. Feminism say that we, we want to put up women, they're erasing them. Calling them some, something else, when a prestigious university like John Hopkins, oh, they've taken it down, but when they come out and redefine a woman as a non-man, what is that but erasure? What is it when one of the primary people sitting on the Supreme Court, will refuse to even say what a woman is. But God has. He tells us right here, we are to encourage those younger widows, younger women across the board to do, not to make culture and the lifestyle of culture the norm and criticize biblical models, but to make biblical models the norm and to stand against the pressure of a culture that is coming against all of those truths. Now, I said I was going to go back to verse 6. Here's where we end. 
She who is self-indulgent is spiritually dead even when she physically lives. I added those words because here, here is the bottom line that you, you, don't, you don't get. This kind of message is for believers. And non-believers hearing this, unless you were raised in a super conservative culture, I guess, you might buy into this. But really, this is for, for believers. A person who is spiritually alive. You don't want to be like this, verse 6. She who is self-indulgent. How do you tell if you're not really a believer? You're self-indulgent. You're spiritually dead, even though you're walking around. You have physical life. The worst kind of situation you could be in is to be spiritually dead when you think you're living. And man, that's all in the church. And so I, I end with this, an opportunity to believe the gospel. God created you and you've sinned against him. He's a holy God. He will punish sin, but he sent his son in the place of sinners. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He really died. He was buried. But he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. By repenting, turning away from all kinds of self-idolatry and turning to the finished work of Christ on the cross, to Jesus himself, you can come into a relationship with him where this kind of teaching will not only make sense, but you'll want to share it with other people. I don't know if this totally relates, but I, Jan and I were watching the news the other night and I said, boy, there is a sermon illustration there. Did you see the story about the woman in Ecuador? And she was in her casket, in her coffin, and they were at her wake. That's what you do for dead people. And they heard, did you, did you see this story? They heard the knocking on the coffin. They opened it. She was still alive, and so they took her to the hospital. I don't know what happened to her. At the end of that, I thought, oh, wow. Jan said, that's pretty scary. Yeah. But even more scary is to know that you're dead in your trespasses and sin. And only our great God can extend the grace to you to grant you repentance and faith. And so that's the last word that I would say. If you're here and you heard the gospel, and say, eh, I'm not so sure about that. Ask God to grant you repentance and faith and to bring you to spiritual life so you can knock on the coffin that's holding you down and have life in Christ. Father, I thank you for your word which speaks to us. I pray that this spoke to the dads here on Father's Day. It did to me. And uh, Lord, we repent and we confess in the ways that we are not like you and we don't think your thoughts. Help us, whether we're a teenager or even a child or a young adult or an older adult. Please, God, help us take your word in and to think your thoughts. And then to be truly born again so that we can, by the power of your Holy Spirit, act like you. Lord, that will make not only for an individual who's growing 
in Christ's likeness, but a church that is growing in Christ's likeness as well. So I thank you for this and pray that we would respond accordingly and that you would bless us now to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.